breaking things here in the studio. Uh, <laughs> as Pam sits in the booth laughing at me. Welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. We're counting it down to the end of the year now. We're deep into awards season. Um, and it's movie madness and mayhem uh, for the next few weeks. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movies, movers and shakers and the movie and TV makers uh, and talk to everybody, producers, directors, writers, production designers, cinematographers, sound editors, video editors, uh, actors, and so much more. Uh, very excited. We got a full show again today for you. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, a lot of new reviews and, and a few new interviews up on BehindTheLensOnline.net this week. So take a look at those. You, of course, can find my movie reviews and interviews in the U.S. and abroad 24-7 in print and online. But always on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Uh, and, of course, every Monday, right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And... If you are so inclined, you can go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page and you can actually watch eh, the Facebook live stream because owner Nick likes to play with toys. Unfortunately, thanks to the phone company, uh, our Wi-Fi is not working. So our Mevo video, which gives the really cool, beautiful picture, is not functioning. So, But we do have a camera that is streaming and... I love doing the tablescapes every week, and this week we've got a really cool tablescape just chock full of DVDs, uh, awards contenders uh, for all the Guild Awards and, of course, the biggies, the Golden Globes, the Oscars, and whatnot. I'll be voting myself uh, in the coming weeks as a member of uh, LA Online Film Critics Society, uh, and as a matter of fact, just got my ballot uh, to start completing last night. Uh, I want to give a shout out to our president, uh, Scott Menzel. He put a lot of time and effort into giving people some guidelines and hints uh, on how you actually complete ballots. Um, Pam's cracking up. Okay, this is, I'm, I'm sorry that we're not wired for sound in the booth because she's just cracking up in there. But, you know, if you take a look today at uh, the Facebook live stream, you're going to see a plethora, and I still have about another 20 that I haven't even displayed uh, on the tablescape. But one thing I do want to point out, I want to give a huge, huge, huge thank you to Swati Bazi and Devika Bazi. Um, they, after they were on the show the other week, they sent me this beautiful coffee table book, Making of the Warrior Queen of Yancey which is, it's a stunning book, and I can't thank them enough, and, and the production company, Cayenne Pepper. Um, and it is, the film is in theaters now, and I can't encourage you enough to go see the film. It's wonderful. Obviously, a lot of you listened last week, because you went out in droves to, you know, you revved those engines to get to the theater to see Ford versus Ferrari, the number one film at the box office this weekend. It is a winner. Last week, of course, you heard our exclusive with Fadon Papa Michael, the cinematographer. Um, we've got more exclusives coming up. Uh, we've got more stuff popping up on the website. But today, I'm very thrilled. Uh, and I have to give a, a big shout out and thank you 
to uh, the folks over at 42 West who set this up. An exclusive two-on-one with Joe and Anthony Russo yesterday. Um, there's a new film opening Friday that I love. Um, I, have, I am crazy about this film. 21 Bridges, starring the King of Wakanda himself, Chadwick Boseman. It is produced by the Russos. And I know you'd find it hard to believe that with all of the work they were doing on Infinity War and Endgame, they'd have time to actually be boots-on-the-ground producers for another film. But they are indeed. And what's really special about 21 Bridges, besides the fact it's a great thriller, uh, the drama is intense. The cinematographer, Paul Cameron, his work is fabulous. They shot the film in Philly, subbing it for New York City. Um, and, uh, hopefully this week, my interview with Paul Cameron, my exclusive with Paul will be up. And, uh, I know all the locations they shot in, in Philadelphia, but some great anecdotes about shooting on a SEPTA train. Uh, Philadelphia is very accommodating. Uh, they actually, in their train yard, there's a huge train yard in Philly. If you haven't, if you haven't been there, but if you, and even driving along the Schuylkill Expressway, you'll see the train yard. But they have a car that they keep set off, and that gets used for film productions. And they give you X amount of time, and it's your car, and you can throw gimbals under it. You can uh, throw steel beams, do what you need to do. But uh, very accommodating in that regard. And there's a great train sequence in 21 Bridges and a great story that goes with it that uh, you'll be able to find out uh, when I air the interview from, with Paul Cameron. But... For Joe and Anthony Russo, Brian Kirk directs 21 Bridges, Brian's first feature directorial. This is the first uh, feature film coming out of Agbo Films, which is Joe and Anthony's new company. And it is the first real boots on the ground producing for Chadwick Boseman as well. And he stars in the film. So it all comes together. In this incredible, I mean, this thriller is great. And the premise for anyone who has not seen uh, the trailers, the film takes place in New York City. And there has been, uh, let's say, a little, a, a, a little heist. More than a little heist. But, and as the lead detective, Andre Davis, it is up to him to figure out how to catch these guys in the course of the night before it gets blood, this whole pursuit get and the crime gets exposed in time for the morning news and it hits the streets and you've got these killers on the loose. Um, so it's just an intense manhunt and it is, it's riveting. It is compelling. In addition to Chadwick uh, supporting Cassiana Miller, plays Andre Davis's partner, narcotics partner investigating this, Frankie Burns. Keith David steps in. J.K. Simmons is in. Uh, and some standout performances from Stefan James and Taylor Kitsch as our two perps. What was very interesting is the psychological drama and the ambiguity that takes place within this film over the course of the night. And you see perceptions and perceptions changing and questions being raised. It is truly an amazing, amazing film. It's out this Friday in theaters. But right now you're going to hear part of 
because I know we won't get to run the whole interview. But you can hear part of our exclusive from yesterday with Joe and Anthony Russo. But I'm thrilled because, number one, this is your first film with your new company with Agbo that you're Thank producing. You. That's right. Brian Kirk's first feature. That's right. Uh-huh. Chad, this is his first real boots on the ground mm-hmm. producing and not just a titular EP. Yeah. So this is... And first post, post King, of, King of Wakanda. Yes. <laughs> you know, number one, how did you guys even find time to produce this film? <laughs> High-functioning ADD. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I think it's interesting. I mean, when you're working on movies like Endgame and Infinity War, they're so all-consuming that it's, it's refreshing at times to just have a counterpoint creatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, you just keeps exercising your muscle in very different ways. Um, and uh, we have an amazing team at Agbo that we work with, and Chadwick uh, is a great producing partner. And you know, a lot of our creative brethren who have worked with us for the last decade are on this movie. From Matt mm-hmm. Carnahan, who's writing the script, we he directed Mosul for us, which had a re- sort of resounding reception at mm-hmm. Venice a couple of months back. Uh, you know, Greg Berry, the production designer, worked with us on Civil War. Henry Jackman, who did yeah. an amazing score on this movie. Uh, this is, uh, you know, a fourth or fifth collaboration with Henry. Yeah. Uh, you know, Brian Kirk is someone we've been chasing for years, so we're very familiar with his work. So this is really, you know, uh, uh, having grown up in a large Italian family, it's important to us to create a, a, an extended creative family. Work it's family. one of the great things with this particular script is that, number one, it's not an action movie. This is, it's a dramatic narrative film seen through the eyes of Chadwick's character of Andre so that the action is really chase scenes, police chase scenes, where, and it's not the chase scenes driving the narrative. The narrative is driving the chase scenes. And so often in films like this, it's the other way around, where the action, a lot of people are starting with the action and trying to make the story fit that. It's so fun to hear you describe it that yeah. way because that, that that is really like such a core value of ours. You know, we people will ask us how we how we direct action scenes, and it's like it, there there's like an action scene does not exist until you have the story behind. Like that's what it is. It's like how, the action is just an extrapolation and expansion upon what's happening to the mm-hmm. character, what's happening to the character psychologically, emotionally, on a, on a plot level, and. That's how we design action in all of our films. But yeah, glad that it sort of plays to you that way in Twenty One Bridges. That's critically important. Oh, I mean, I, that's that jumped out at me from the start, and the fact that then we get into Paul's lensing, and the fact we get some great profile and three quarter profile of Chadwick, and you see the wheels turning. Mm-hmm. There's no exposition. It's you hear score. You've got a relative ECU on him, and you see the wheels turning, and you know he's processing something that everybody else is missing. And it's a real thinking film. Yeah. And I just think for you guys to kick off with this one, man. Well, it's very it's very rare to find an actor like Chadwick who can portray a character that nuanced and that internal with that quiet intensity very complicated character you know you're questioning the whole movie whether he has an emotional need for vengeance or whether this is truly justice 
and uh, and you know we don't answer it to the end of the film. Uh, and even then, you're left with questions. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know why we love genre, elevated genre like The French Connection and Justice for All, and Dog Day Afternoon, and Taking Poem One Two Three, growing up is because they all had social context to them. And when we left the theater, it's a great way to deliver ideas to an audience is through a genre because it's compulsively watchable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but when we leave the theater on a movie like this, we hope that people are asking themselves questions when they walk out the door, uh, and that they're uh, that they're thinking about you know, the themes of the film as much as they are about the action and the characters. And there's some really spectacular acting in the movie, great execution by Brian Kirk, incredible yeah. score, you know, great, great uh, And you bring Sienna in, yep. who just, she just blew me away with American Woman. Yeah. Yep. And now to see her in this, but this whole film is about moral ambiguity. That's right. And to watch the shift as we go to Michael... And we see how Andre's perception of, no, I don't want him dead. Yeah. You know, there's something. And and you see everybody's perspective changing. Even, you know, Taylor as as Ray. And you you guys couldn't have done better than Taylor in that role. I mean, after what we've seen from him in American Assassin, Mm -hmm. um, this schizo, Mm -hmm. yeah, perfect, perfect. And it, it, it is because, it, look, we don't perceive anyone in the world as truly good or truly bad. Right. Right? And, you know, heroes tend to lead more towards the good and villains tend to lead more towards the bad. But everyone is a combination of both. If there's anything lacking in the world today, it's empathy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, I don't know that we listen as well as we should. Uh, and uh, everyone has a point of view. Everyone has a motivation. Sometimes those motivations are good motivations. Sometimes they're bad motivations. So the movie's truly trying to be reflective of the complexity of the world we live in. Uh, and uh, and it doesn't it doesn't pretend to make a statement about who's right or wrong. It just tries to present you with the facts and allows you uh, um, to ask questions at the end of the movie, and, and they're not easy questions. Mm-hmm. I'm curious for you guys, how boots on the ground were you with this with producing this film because of Brian's first time feature, Chad really being on the ground as a first time you know hands on producer. And you guys in the middle of the biggest <laughs> well, movie of all time. Well, we fell for this movie very hard early on. We had a, There was an early draft of the script that basically introduced the concept of the film mm-hmm. to us. And from that point, it was just so... It hit us on two levels, right? Uh, on just a simple concept level, this idea that you, there's a crime that is so severe and it, uh, that, that it would cause the lockdown of Manhattan and Manhunt in a single night. It was extremely exciting. But also the fact that at the center of it all is this character who had been wounded severely as a child, carrying that wound with him into his adulthood, into his life's mission, and sort of understanding, like, where, where, where was that going to take him to a, to a place of sort of, like, was he going to be able to transcend the emotional wound and sort of find a sense of justice as a police officer? Um, those two things, like... The, like once we sort of were circling those two things, we were fully into this movie, even though we didn't necessarily have all the time in the world <laughs> to do it. So we, yeah, we, we, we were supervising rewrites of the screenplay. We brought Matt Conahan on to, to continue with that process because of our respect for him. We picked uh, Brian Kirk very specifically because of the work that we had seen him do. And he was yeah. somebody who was high on our list to find the right project for. Um, every, and certainly Chadwick. I mean, Chadwick was... I would say the most central building block of the entire project because there are few actors that can 
can make that character, uh, uh, give that character the proper depth that he mm-hmm. deserves, and also the proper sort of like uh, just the charisma that he brings to the to a complex character, a compromised character is so interesting and inspiring. Mm-hmm. How involved in the and that was an excerpt. There's still about eight more minutes of the interview with the Russos to go, but our first live guest, writer-director Andrew Lyman Clark, is on the line, so we're going to bring him on. Um, maybe towards the end of the show, we'll be able to pick up the interview as Pam's nodding her head, yes. Okay, so well, a big welcome to Andrew Lyman Clark, fresh off the premiere Hello. of his film Thursday night. Here to talk about night sweats. Hello, Andrew. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, I'm very excited to be talking to you. Wow, what a premise for a film. I. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my gosh. Um, night sweats yeah. is... Um, it will definitely get you thinking and, and probably spark a lot of people to start sweating bullets, wondering and worrying uh, about what kind of pandemics are being released out there in the world and how. Uh, very, very interesting premise and of people, people getting a disease akin to mad cow disease, but nobody knows where it's coming from, how it's being transmitted. Um, but for one guy, um, Yuri, who has his suspicions when his roommate dies in front of him, uh, and he is really the one, just an average Joe, who is, starts putting two and two together, which I think you've got some great commentary happening in this film, Andrew. Uh, it comments on the, on the big pharma industry. It, it comments on perhaps the ineptitude of the government agencies when it comes to situations like this. Um, where did the idea for this film originate? Well, that's a great question. I'm um, just hearing a little bit of an echo myself. So if I get a little confused, just forgive me. But uh, I um, basically it's based on a true story. Um, inspired by true events, I should say. Mm-hmm. And uh, the producer, Seth Pamman, one of the two producers on the film, moved to New York City in uh, 2005 or thereabouts. And he actually worked for a self-help company that True Healing in the film uh, is based on. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a sketchy self-help company where he was interviewing uh, people who had been through some kind of trauma, uh, supposedly for the purpose of putting out there and helping people who might have been through something similar who could watch these trauma testimonials. Um, But the boss at the company was like verbally and physically abusive to, uh, to Seth. And after he had filmed many, many testimonials, um, the company kind of packed up in the middle of the night and left without a trace. And he was stiffed of his last paycheck. Um, So, the overall, you know, impression it was a very sketchy company and it being his first opportunity in New York, you know, he got this really sort of kind of a wake up call reality check of what New York City can be like, mm-hmm. um, you know, as, as kind of a, a edgy, uh, tough place. So after that experience, um, he was 
getting a lot of strange offers because his his name was now out there as this kind of in this self-helpy trauma world. Mm -hmm. And he got contacted by somebody who um, was a young woman who wanted him to film her spreading uh, a deadly STD through New York City. And, um, you know, documentary style to document this project of hers. And he, you know, talked to his entertainment lawyer and, and, and turned down the project, you know, as unethical. And, um, but he told me about it. We had worked on some projects together and he came to me and he said, maybe we should make a narrative film about this. And I said, I think it's a great idea. I think it's terrifying the idea that there's individuals out there who are intentionally spreading STDs. And honestly, um, a film like that would be really entertaining, but it would also have a potent message uh, to protect yourself. And because, you know, there's individuals like this out there. And um, like you were saying, uh, there's corruption and conspiracies that go beyond just individuals that are also happening nowadays that we mm-hmm. need to be careful about. So I kind of put it all into one um, thriller entertainment vehicle, but there's a lot of commentary and messaging going on in there. Oh, uh, without a doubt. But I love the way you've structured the film as you take us through. Everything is in Yuri's perspective. And I have to say, Kyle, uh, Kyle DeSpiegler, who plays Yuri, he does, a, he does a wonderful job, especially when he starts getting sick. And he really brings a lot to the table uh, in, those, in the third act of the film uh, in that regard, which is then complemented by some wonderful cinematography and your visual effects uh, are top-notch cool. to really to, you know, hone in on somebody who's having these massive headaches that feels like your head is exploding, that your brain is about to just burst. Uh, You've got some incredible (laughs) brain VFX going on. And then with hallucination, and you've got a lot of camera play, a lot of camera dutching, and then you enhance on top of that. Really nice sensory touches. So anybody watching the film, is you're going to start feeling what Yuri is feeling. Um, you know, you, you have learned how to use the VFX to create that sensory aspect of, an ex- of a movie-going experience, and it works so well. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. You know, once you had this uh, script in play, how did you go about c- designing your visual construct and figuring out how to bring these things to life for the audience? Um, So I will say that I wanted to make a movie where I could use some of these techniques Mm -hmm. uh, that I have always really liked. And I really like the movie Requiem for a Dream. Mm -hmm. And that movie uses techniques such as the Snorri Cam which is a camera that's mounted on the actor pointing back at them. And it creates a really disorienting and um, an effect of some kind of altered consciousness. Usually in that movie, it refers to drug use, but in my movie, it 
you know, is obviously used to convey a disease mm-hmm. state of state of mind. Um, so I really wanted to use that. And I also, I really liked an effect that I had seen in Batman Begins where uh, there's kind of this pulsing quality uh, when, when a POV shot is shown. So we're looking through the eyes of the character and the world is kind of pulsing, certain elements pulsing mm-hmm. more than others. So it creates a real subjective feel of somebody tripping, essentially, and and having that altered perception where things are almost popping out at them or, or jumping out at them. So um, I kind of had some things that I had wanted to use and, and the script, you know, became a vehicle for those uh, with a disease that does affect the brain. Um, so it was pretty organic how it all kind of emerged. I did decide early on you know, after the uh, true story element that I didn't want to make it about an actual STD that exists. I wanted to create a new STD that has terrifying um, symptoms. And then that would also enable me to use uh, some of these techniques that I think are just really fun and visual. And like you said, bring the viewer into the consciousness of the main character, which is uh, something that I want to do in my work. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's it's executed very, very well uh, from that perspective. But also enhancing that, you've got John Kafer's score, which right. I'm very surprised with a film like this. So often you may hear parts of the score overpowering um, the film itself. But here it really serves it. You know, it's running in tandem. It's not overpowering mm. it. It's not an undercurrent, but it's actually walking side by side with what we're seeing. And you really use it well because you have many periods within the scene, within the film, where you have no dialogue. It's experiential. And right. that's where, and your score comes, it, you have it integrated so beautifully there. Oh, thank you. I mean, yeah, John did a tremendous job on the score. I mean, he took about a year to make that. So it's just a staggering amount of work. And the guy went to Eastman and um, has all kinds of professional accolades. And um, so I really credit him with, with, with an incredible score. And um, also, you know, me just sort of helping him with it, doing some revisions um, to make sure that the the beats in the music, like the the changes, the shifts, and the tone of it, are kind of like you say, not overpowering anything that's going on, and not not kind of pulling you in the wrong direction, but really complementing it and um, helping to helping to bring the viewer into the experience of the main character. I wanted the music to help the viewer to feel what Yuri is feeling mm-hmm. at any given time. So as you can see, like everything came back for me to like helping the viewer to be inside the consciousness yeah. of the main character to the maximum possible extent. Yeah. And you really, you get that across so well between Kyle's performance with the cinematography, with the VFX and with your score. And, you know, and your editing comes into play here as well. The film is very evenly paced. 
Something that I'm curious about, because so much of this film are exteriors. They're out on the street. Number one, you had to find yeah. a- actors that could skateboard and skateboard well. Uh, and then you're shooting on a multiplicity of streets. What kind of challenge was that for you as a director? Um, yeah, it was hard finding people who could actually skateboard and act. <laughs> it's a smaller pool than you might think. Um, Kyle was initially cast in the Kickstarter video, which we used to raise money for the film, purely because he could act and skateboard. And obviously he's a good actor, um, but the skateboarding piece was essential. I always wanted this character to be a skateboarder. And again, I think it's a lot because I wanted to be able to do some cool subjective motion shots with the skateboard, like the shots where we're um, moving at the same speed as the skateboard and we're kind of close up on the skateboard. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that feeling that dynamic movement and also when uh we're on kyle's base again with the snorri cam and he's skateboarding you know we're we are moving with him so mm-hmm. it, it helps us to feel like we are him um but uh back to your point um yeah we we didn't get permits or anything for any of that we were just skating around the streets and filming and uh you know kyle has this massive well, not massive, but it's basically a pole that mounts to him with a camera attached to it. So that's sticking out from him about four feet and he's skateboarding and I'm just hoping he doesn't fall because then the camera would smash and he might kind of get impaled a little bit. Not not impaled, but it would hurt, you know. So it was all very guerrilla style and took some actual physical bravery on his part, as well as, of course, uh, John Franco Macaro, who plays Jake who actually is a semi-pro skateboarder and he was doing some actual tricks in the movie, mm-hmm. um, jumping over cones and going up onto, um, uh, these sort of like ramp things under the bridge at the skater party. So I made sure to get somebody who was actually like really good at skateboarding to kind of legitimize the whole skateboarding element. Cause Kyle, you know, he can do it, but he's not, he can't do any tricks, you know, so that was important. Mm-hmm. Why skateboarders? I find it really interesting, especially since it really feeds into the whole idea of an average Joe being the one to start putting these puzzle pieces together. But I'm curious, why why go with the skateboard? Is it to set up the whole idea of airborne, an airborne virus, or... Um, you know, what What was the idea think, behind that? I think that it came from the fact that Seth Panman, the producer who I mentioned, who had the actual experience, mm-hmm. was, a, was a professional snowboarder for a while out in Colorado. And then he moved to New York City. And that's when he had these intense experiences. Um, and so the, the Yuri character was largely based on him, who he is, and... I thought that it was important that Yuri be kind of an adrenaline junkie, somebody who does risky things already in his life, because as you know, during the course of the movie, he's doing increasingly risky things, taking on the, this weird corrupt company that probably killed his friend and trying to um, tackle these 
things that are that most people would shy away from. So I wanted him to be an adrenaline junkie and kind of fearless. So mm-hmm. um, I think the skateboarding element worked for that. No, it it definitely does. Definitely does. You know, what what was the greatest challenge for you in getting this film made? You did, you know, your first feature was, uh, you know, a decade ago. And yeah. here you are with another feature now. And, of course, tech, a lot of technology has changed in the past decade. Um, so I'm curious, what was this learning curve, relearning curve like for you to bring this film to life? Um, well... I have stayed active in filmmaking, you know, since my last feature. Uh, I've had a career of working in video uh, throughout the entire time. Um, worked at Cosmopolitan.com as a video producer, and then uh, subsequent to that, now I'm at J.P. Morgan Chase as a video producer. So my I've kept my skills sharp throughout um, as far as filmmaking and keeping up with the technology and, and so forth. The um, the biggest challenge is the time, how much how much time it takes for each phase of making a feature, which is why it took ten years or nine <laughs> years. Um, screenwriting is actually really time consuming. It took me like four years to write the script. I did twenty three drafts or something, and just the development of it, coming up with the whole world that I want the the world that I wanted to portray for this film there was a lot of um decision making that went into even before I was writing the script and then you know and then you know you're you're casting people and that takes a long time and then there's production and reshoots and then you're editing for a really long time and then you're doing sound design and color correction and a lot of this time I had a full-time job mm-hmm. as a producer during the day. So I'm doing this on my lunch break and I'm doing it after work. And uh, so it's, it's really the time thing mm-hmm. that, that is the most challenging aspect and also the money. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, it's all, it's always place. the money. <laughs> money, yeah, right? money always comes into play. Yeah. That's always a challenge. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time um, today, Andrew. This has been a a joy talking to you. Where can everybody see Night Sweats? Yes, everyone can see Night Sweats on iTunes, Google Play, and Amazon. Take your pick. And it's all there Uh, now. Available to rent. It's, It's up right now, available to rent or purchase. So everybody should go out and check it out. It's a really fun film. Oh, Andrew, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back on the show again. Um, I would love to. Thank oh. you so much. I, and thank you for your kind words about the film. I really appreciate it. Trust me. As Susie will tell you, if it sucked, I would tell you. So. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that, Leslie. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andrew. Bye-bye. Have a great one. Bye. And that was writer-director Andrew Lyman-Clark talking about... Night Sweats. Um, yes, it's digitally available right now. You, trust me, you will enjoy this film. And now, I am so excited to welcome David Baker and Justin Smith. Are you both on the line? Good morning. We're here. Yes, Hi. we are. Thank oh, you, you called on the same phone. Wow. You could have called on separate phones if you wanted. Um, 
I have to tell you, I am so excited by your documentary, Saving Atlantis, profiling the major coral reefs around the globe. Really, I was riveted watching the documentary because you really bring it down to the very basic level for people to understand. We learn about the cultures of the people that rely on what the coral reefs bring, as in fish. Um, Dead reefs, bleached reefs, no fish, no fishing, no people. Um, You put it all together so succinctly for each of these areas of the world and then have wonderful scientists talking about um, the process, you know, how coral reefs form. It's, I mean, I was taken back to sixth grade science. It was wonderful. How much I actually remember, how much I actually remembered as I was watching the doc. Um, What led you guys to tell this story? There are so many stories to tell about global warming. This boils down to this and the reefs are one of the primary examples of what we can physically see global warming doing. That and the melting of the glaciers on the poles. Um, but what led you to tell this story? Yeah, that's a, that's a question. Uh, you know, in a way, we didn't even have a choice. It was kind of for us. We, we set off to tell a story about, you know, what coral reefs were and kind of explore the magic of them. And then in the midst of filming things kind of started to degrade and we had the, the most major bleaching events on the Great Barrier Reef uh, while we were kind of in the midst of this and, and we realized we quickly had to expand the story to talk about what was going on. I'll, I'll let David explain a little further. Uh, yeah, we um, something else we wanted to do or that we learned in the process was uh, the human side of coral reefs. Mm-hmm. So that's where we started looking at the communities that were impacted, not just, you know, the scientists that we were traveling with, but we wanted to convey how important these ecosystems are to somebody, let's say, in the middle of a landlocked place like Kansas. And we thought the way to do that was to bring the story in. Mm-hmm. And, and I love the fact that you address the idea of, especially for the ocean cultures, especially in French Polynesia, in Morea, or in Hawaii, and how traditions, family traditions, and the importance of the reefs and of the sea are handed down from generation to generation. But at the same time, it's being stressed within the generations that if you don't take care of this, we will be gone. Because this is how we exist. And if it's gone, we're gone. And... I love the way that you really tap into that. You really humanize this on a very, very personal level with people. And that's something we don't normally see um, in documentaries like this, especially the ones addressing global warming. Um, everybody keeps it on the, on the bigger corporate levels, and you really personalize it. Was that always the intent, and how difficult was it to get a lot of these people to talk. Yeah, so I think that was one of our initial to expand on the typical nature documentary in a way. You know, we're both huge fans of BBC work and Blue Planet and, you know, everything else they've created. And what we always 
dealt with that we never got the human connection to any of these environments as we are a major presence in a lot of these ecosystems, whether or not we should be, we are. So we thought the best way to do this would be to, to find these human stories and really explore them and do them justice. And it, it wasn't always easy to get these individuals to open up because, you know, there's that risk of them feeling like they're just being exploited, but, you know, we really had a genuine interest in what their lives were like. And I think as we showed some dedication to learning that, people were more and more willing to open up. Mm-hmm. How did you go about selecting the reefs to focus on in the film? Because I love the way you take us around the world. I mean, how many of us really knew that there is a coral reef in the Red Sea? Uh, you know, fun facts to know and tell come out in this documentary, guys. But uh, I'm curious how you selected the reefs to profile. And, of course, you led up to the big one, the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, sure, yeah. Connected ourselves with a researcher um, that we profiled, Rebecca Vega. She was in the midst of working on Global Coral Microbiome Project, which is a, a project uh, sampling the genetic makeup of corals around the world. And just by its very nature, they had to go to different diverse places around the world. So that was a way that logistically we just tagged along with her and followed her work around the world. And then in each location, we did research. And in some cases, we waited until, you know, we were there and started to build relationships with um, locals in the communities, whether it's the people who are uh, driving the boats that scientists use or people selling fish in the markets. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it was very pragmatic in a lot of ways. Well, you know, I'm curious because so much of, of your footage takes place underwater, um, were you two uh, di- master divers? Had you ever been scuba diving? Had you ever been working cameras underwater before? I'm curious about the directorial and technical logistics of making the dock. Sure. Yeah, the answer to all those questions is no. <laughs> we uh, had independently snorkeled on vacation probably, and we're, we're coming from Oregon, which isn't known for its scuba diving necessarily. And um, part of the deal was that we were having to work our way up through scientific dive certification, which is a relatively high level of certification in, in order to what they consider conducting work underwater. Mm-hmm. And that was a requirement in order to dive with the researchers on these trips. And so David and I spent a, a very cold um, December into a January in Puget Sound in Washington, in fact, learning how to scuba dive and then and we had to integrate this whole idea of operating a camera underwater, which was immensely challenging, harder than we could have imagined. And so it was exciting and daunting and you know, everything in between. And I think I, we both recall a low point where we were huddled in our rental car while it's hailing on us, you know, and we're, we're just trying to get warm enough to get back in the water and our, our dive instructors rapping on the window reminding us that we need to be, you know, jumping in in 10 minutes. And we're just thinking this all for, you know, it was <laughs> ridiculous. What cameras were you shooting with underwater? Yeah, so that was a decision we had to make pretty early on, and we needed to be pretty compact, you know, getting in and out of the, the boats and moving quickly. Um, but we also wanted to be able to capture in 4K. So at that point, we made the decision to use the Panasonic GH4, uh, which had some limitations, um, you know, but it worked really well for what we were working with and, you know, 
over the course of the four years that we filmed, they they pretty well. We did supplement some of that on land with different cameras, but for the majority, the underwater was all Panasonic GH4s at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, as you were jumping in the water in various parts around the globe, did you, did the two of you notice differentials in the various reefs and the actual waters that you were in, in terms of the light, uh, you know, the life that was down there or what wasn't there, or even just the viscosity of the water itself. Because you pick some very diverse places here. I mean, you go from Cartagena Bay to the Red Sea, uh, Great Barrier Reef, which is warmer, and Morea. But even with your footage, I'm seeing differentials, uh, water differentials on screen. So I'm curious what you guys noticed when you were under, under the water in all these places. Uh, yes, we we did see large differences, and, and some of the things that surprised us were even in very remote places um, like French Polynesia, where there aren't a lot of big rivers dumping nutrients from a continental mm-hmm. um, uh, landmass onto the reefs, we did still see degradation happening. So one thing we learned from that was that these global pressures uh, are, are really reaching everywhere. You can't hide from them. And then something else that shocked us is one of the more polluted places where we went, where we dove, was in Cartagena Bay at the mouth where there was a reef that was discovered um, by scientists only recently mm-hmm. uh, that was surviving all of these human pressures. It was having a lot of sediment dumped right on top of the reef. And um, there's a big mystery as to why that reef is surviving in those conditions. But unfortunately, reef had been scheduled to be dredged for a shipping channel. So um, one of the goals as we roll out this film and show it around the world is to raise awareness about this very rare and uh, puzzling reef that is thriving and could withstand climate change and other human pressures that's, you know, currently threatened by development. Wow. You know, and that that's a fascinating uh, fact because that more or less plays into Darwin's whole survival of the fittest. Somehow this reef has morphed to survive and to an extent even thrive uh, despite all the dumping and what man has done. Of course, a reef is not going to survive when they come in and dredge because it just totally gets ripped out. Uh, but that's uh, that's a fascinating bit of information that, that came out, and that came out early in the film. Um, and let's face it, that was not one of the prettier reefs that you were diving in. Well, the corals, uh, the water isn't, isn't beautiful, but the corals are really incredible in terms of their size. And mm-hmm. once you get down below this water, it's really stunning. But, um, but yeah, in terms of the crystal clear water where you can see hundreds of, of yards that definitely wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Which, what was your favorite reef to dive in and to shoot? I, I think personally for me it would have been the Red Sea just because it was such a unique experience. It, it took a lot of, of just logistics to, to make that, that trip happen. You can't visit as a tourist, obviously, so it was part of a, a research invite that enabled us to get to Saudi Arabia and you're visiting these reefs, and you're you're not seeing any dive boats around. You're not you're, you're thinking maybe I'm the first person to even see this. Wow! And, and I don't know if that's true, but it you got that sense quite often diving out there. Wow! I love that. So as you're accumulating all of this footage over the years, you're talking to scientists. 
when did you start structuring your through line of the documentary and start putting all the pieces together? Was it as you were shooting? Did you wait till you had amassed everything and then sat down the editing bay? Uh, what was that like, putting this through line and timeline together? We had planned um, what the structure of the film would be early on in the shooting, but I think in every documentary, you know, life gets in the way and stories, you know, uh, show up out of the blue and you adapt to them. So it was, it was really challenging. For one thing, corals are hard to understand. There's a lot of science that goes into mm -hmm. um, uh, explaining how they work, and we wanted to do that in a way um, as, as not to uh, kind of bore the audience. But we also didn't want to skip over that because it's very fundamental and important. So it was really a struggle, and we went back and forth in the editing room, and, and Justin and I would kind of push it as far as we could go and then kick it to the other director um, to try and keep pushing it forward. And we, we worked like that for about a year to come up with the edit. Mm -hmm. and I love how you've, you've got some time-lapse photography happening in there. You've got extreme, you've got some great ECUs, vibrant uh, in color, showing exactly how the algae with inside, the organisms with inside are moving and, you know, within the, the calcium uh, you know, ex ectoskeleton, so to speak, of the coral. Um, did you guys shoot that as well? Yeah, there's a mix of footage that you'll see as far as the microscopy, microscopy goes. Some of that we shot at a lab uh, at Oregon State University. Mm -hmm. I believe the, the other was from the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology. Yeah, we did have some researchers around the world who, um, and in locations where we visited, who uh, use high-definition experts of video for their research. They were very willing to um, share that with us when they found out what we were doing. And also that, that we were treating the science very seriously. They appreciated that. And, and once they learned that, um, they were very forthcoming with footage from around the world. Mm -hmm. Well, something that you you lead up to uh, as, you know, through the documentary is this whole idea of selective breeding um, for the coral. Wow. That is never in my wildest dreams would I ever have imagined that there are scientists working on selective breeding of coral to try and buttress um, you know, how coral lives and functions and, and to help keep it alive and to restore uh, the bleached out areas that we've already lost. Was, how, how exciting was that for you when, these science, when the science is coming out that's beyond what we typically kind of know about coral? Well, yeah, that, that's an amazing storyline. Um, and, you know, it's quite controversial well, uh, corals, because it hasn't been done before, also because corals are a very difficult organism mm -hmm. to breed. They have a very complicated breeding behavior. So, uh, but we have, as, a, as, a, as humans have been breeding and, and creating hybrids of different plants, different animals for a long, long time. So the technology in some ways is very old. It just hasn't been done in that marine environment mm -hmm. before. So, um, some sci science, that's just 
you know, a little too late and it's maybe risky to introduce hybrids into the wild. Other scientists are really thinking, hey, we have to do whatever we can do to create corals that'll survive over the next 100 years. So, um, it, it, you know, it was, it was something that we tried to cover and tried to include one of the possible solutions that scientists are working on. And, and what we've come to think is it's really going to take all of these activities. We right. do have to work on climate change and policy at the governmental level, but we also need these individual projects to have success as well if we are going to be in a world where our children can enjoy and see and get the benefits of coral. Mm-hmm. And and not just them, but just for actual cultures that rely on, you know, on what coral what coral gives us. Um, that that to me really is one of the greatest takeaways of this documentary. But the selective breeding of coral, you could do a whole documentary just on that. Uh, that just fascinates me. Yeah, and work that's kind of an offshoot of that is a project to basically cryogenically freeze all of these coral variations before we lose them as a species. So we kind of have this database to to reflect on if we end up in a worst-case scenario. Yeah, well, hopefully we will not get to the worst-case scenario, but one never knows, um, especially as we see the political climate right now, um, which is doing a, a lot more damage uh, to the environment. Um, but that is for another documentary. But <laughs> um, I'm curious, what is it that that attracts the two of you to documentaries and the subjects that you pick? Um, you've done an American wine story. Wine and coral, slightly different. Um, so I'm curious what it is that drives you, that attracts you to tell a particular story. Well, we both, um, we both work at a university. Um, so we're science communicators uh, as well as independent filmmakers. And this was an opportunity to take one of our, our research-based projects to an independent film level. So I, I think we're both fascinated by science, and we're not scientists. So our job is that for audiences um, in various levels, from five-minute shorts to longer documentaries. So uh, the great thing about being a documentary filmmaker, and what I enjoy about it most, is like getting a, an associate's degree, at least, in, in a lot of different subjects. Every time you do a film and spend four years doing it, you get to immerse yourself in it, and you really need that outside perspective to translate this very arcane science, because we're talking with the top researchers in the world who are very focused and narrow in their experience, and it, it's a, a fun challenge to translate that into a narrative story. Mm-hmm. What was your, your? I think just to add to that, you know, you find yourselves in the midst of these massive global challenges, and you know, we filmed a lot of different situations, and you start to wonder what your role is. In all this, you know, we're working with scientists that are dedicating their careers to fixing this, or at least attempting to. And sometimes you feel like you're just sitting there filming it. But what we come to realize is that the the most powerful tool we have as storytellers is to share this with other people. And when we screen this film and we have a, you know, when we're doing the festival circuit and you got an audience full of people that walk away with a lot more knowledge than they walked in with, that, that feels pretty good. And I think that's a huge motivator for us both. Well, I know that's, that's something I, I totally appreciate about Saving Atlantis is how much more I learned 
watching this documentary on a human level, and, but on the science level as well. Um, you impart a lot of information, but you impart it so that the average layman can understand it. And that, I think, is one of the gifts that you give us with the documentary, because it's everybody that needs to be able to understand it, not just the scientists. Um, so, I mean, just so well done, guys. So well done. Where can people see? I know the, the doc is available now. Where all can they find it? Uh, right now it's on uh, transactional video on demand, like iTunes, Vudu, Amazon. It can be purchased and rented on DVD or streaming. And then um, we're working right now with our distributor on finding more um, streaming options down the road. So we're just starting our distribution process. Now, do you have any plans for it to go out onto DVD or Blu-ray at some point? It's available on either through Amazon right now. Oh. And where can people, if they want to find out more about the documentary and about the science that's being done, is there a website that the two of you would recommend people go to? Uh, yes, it's coralreefmovie.org, and you can find resources, uh, a comic strip, and classroom materials. Uh, so we really want this film to be shown widely, whether it's homes or in schools. Um, and you bring up a great point there uh, about the schools. Is there any plan to go into schools with this? Yes, we actually have an educational uh, distributor, so Collective Eye Films. And any library or university or high school in the country can go there and license the film for use in the classroom. And, and, and those supporting materials are available on the website. Oh, my God. That's, that's fabulous. Very much needed in today's world. David, Justin, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Thank you. Fascinating talking to you about this documentary. Um, I can't wait to see the next thing that you bring us. Are you working on anything else right now? We are, in fact. It, we're still a little ways out. Have something great for you in the future, we promise. <laughs> and it won't be Carl. It'll be something else. So you've got. Uh, it's it's kind of the whole planet at this point. <laughs> fair, fair okay. To say that much. Well, you started with a country wedding. You moved on to wine. That prepared you for tackling the planet. I think. Uh, Not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> we ended up. With bigger subject matter than we ever thought we would, but here we are. There's no going back now. Okay, uh, then this is the time to do that. I mean, that's this is the subject to what's happening uh, with the human impact on the planet is something that's going to affect all of us sooner or later. Well, so we feel a responsibility to to work with it. Well, get to work and come back on the show with something else fun and fascinating to talk about. I'd love to have you guys back. Will do. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. And everybody can see Saving Atlantis right now. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. And that was co-directors David Baker, Justin R. Smith. Uh, and, of course, Justin was also doing a lot of the camera work along with Daryl Lye and Daniel uh, Suspides. Um, you get scientific dive certification. You travel around the world to film and study coral reefs, and you talk to the world's greatest scientists. This is an important documentary. It is one that, as I said in our conversation, it is easy to understand for the layperson. 
It sets things out. You can relate to this on a personal level with people impacted and then also see how that impact reaches out to all of us. Um, Unfortunately, this is all the time we have for the show today. So you can go watch a thriller about spreading disease. You can go see a documentary uh, on the coral reefs and helping to save those and what's being done. Also, those of you in the L.A. area, AFI Fest is still going on. There's some great films there that are screening. If you get a chance, tomorrow there is one screening left of a film that I am particularly fond of. It is called The Planter. And it is, it's a quirky delight. I know it's airing tomorrow. I, it's playing tomorrow night, I think at 9 o'clock at the Chinese 6. Uh, you can check. It is well worth seeing. You will just laugh yourself silly. It's a dark comedy. Uh, and it's from Alexandra Kocheff and Hannah Le- uh, Letter. Um, just a fabulous film. And I can't wait to see more from, from those girls. I talked to them on Friday. So we'll be having that interview either and or either here on the show or on BehindTheLensOnline.net. So until next week, and we've got a full house next week, too, to finish out November. uh, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 